and welcome to an episode of HR Nightmares. This is um, one of our final episodes of season two, and I am thrilled. Um, it's our first time that we're doing a remote hosted episode here. We are here with Steve Oziel. Um, he's our first international guest, so we're feeling like big time over here on <laughs> HR Nightmares. <laughs> so thanks for um, being here. Also on your birthday, happy birthday to you. Um, here at HR Nightmares, we love to talk about all the things that HR people said that they were going to write a book about, but we will never sit down and be that focused to actually get a book written. So we just yak it up with um, amazing, fun guests that talk about all the things that are on our mind and our listeners' mind. So um, one cool thing that we do, Steve, at the end is we have um, audience write-ins and they try to trick us up or they're looking for advice and it could be anywhere from like uh, eight other HR colleagues that are out there and listen to the podcast to managers, owners, um, or even just employees looking for some good solid advice because they have no one to talk to. Um, so anyway, we're happy. Uh, we are now, as far as listenership, we love that we're listened to in every state across the United States. Um, a couple of different countries, including Canada. I verified that. Steve's up in Toronto. Um, so I'm joined by Steve, um, our guest, who is also um, not only lives in Canada as our first international guest, but he is a total compensation expert. And so I think by the time you you hold all these cool positions that you've held and you've been a key trusted advisor and a consultant out there for this many years that you can officially call yourself an expert. And of course, I've got Amy Conway here, who's a longtime um, OG in HR and business leadership. And so we're happy to have you. So tell us a little bit. Uh, introduce yourself, Steve, if you don't mind. How'd you end up in the seat um, sitting here across from us today? Yeah, I was thinking about that. You know, one of my first jobs, I worked in a cemetery. And then I was cutting grass, very quiet, lot, lots of reading to do. Um, then I worked actually with sex offenders, um, testing, but we'll, that's another story. And then I ended up in HR. So it's, you know, I keep going better and better. Um, <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, it, it, so it, naturally it, I transitioned to HR. It, oh it's my exactly, God. But, but what's what's funny, but on the side, I'm, I'm sort of a beekeeper on the side. So I'm going from HR to bees, which sting just a little bit more, a little bit more re realistically than, than what HR does or in the business. So, um, yeah. So thanks for having me on, uh, Lisa and Amy. I really do appreciate it. So I'm a, I'm a brother from another country, I guess you can say, up in Canada. But everybody cares about pay. Everybody cares about compensation and the benefits they receive. So really, we're very similar in terms of what's happening. A um, little bit of taxation differences, a little bit of difference in how benefits are certainly applied. No commentary from a Canadian perspective on U.S. benefits in terms of uh, political. <laughs> Come on, you mean how it's for another episode? <laughs> that's, that's, that's another episode. But um, yeah, so I, I actually started undergraduate in psychology. Didn't want to get a PhD. It's going to take too long. Fell in love with stats fell in love with a girl from New York. So I actually did my master's degree at Columbia University, spent two years in New York City, which is an amazing time. Mm -hmm. And then I worked my way up. I, I fell in love with compensation and, you know, fitting it all together. Started off from a junior something, an analyst to a specialist, to a manager, to a director. And then finally I took the leap into consulting. And so a different world. 
And rather than seeing over and over cycles within organizations, oh, I've seen now 200 organizations. Uh, I've seen everything there is to see on a, on a compensation perspective, working with leaders such as yourself, working with CFOs, and I'm really enjoying it. And you know, through my travels with JMI, I, get to, I, I got to meet you in Baltimore, Lisa. That's right. I yeah, I went, that was one of my favorite trips I ever did, not only because the workshop at JMI Private Equity Group was free and Steve was there, but also the night before I was sitting on the porch of my hotel and I would look, it like looked over the power plant in Baltimore, which is like an outdoor music venue. And Mastodon was playing, which was like a heavy metal. Um, <laughs> it was so funny. I was like, I'm here for this like super white collar conference and Mastodon is jamming outside the night before. So that was a memorable, um, that was a memorable 24 hour trip, Steve. Oh, nice. And so hopefully I'm, I'm happy I was part of that. Yeah. Um, the great part is, you know, a lot of the clients that Amy at Leith HR Group, and then I'm the I'm now working um, as the chief people officer at Vanica, and we're we're very small, right? We only have 140 employees at this point, but we're growing. A lot of the companies that we work with, we we have these big company backgrounds, and we understand sort of like total comp and ben, total rewards from a big company standpoint, Fortune 500 standpoint. But now we work with much smaller clients, and so. Um, a lot of where we're coming from and our listenership is coming from like midsize um, like or larger small companies. Uh, so just kind of teeing that up. I mean, actually, it doesn't even matter what size company it is. Basically, I found in my 20 years being an HR person that comp is basically always a lose-lose conversation. You cannot... Um, you know, you give somebody a 50 and they want two 25s or you give somebody a hundred dollar bill and you know, they want $200. So, um, it's, I feel like it's always been that kind of way. What keeps you in this game and like, how do you help people like me and Amy steer clear of HR nightmares related to these lose, lose conversations? We're constantly trying to coach managers how to talk about comp, but I feel like it's a never ending. Um, it's a never ending nightmare. Yeah, so, so in my travels, as I was mentioning, um, I used to work for a larger organization. And at a certain point in time, I went from being a professional HR person, putting in the mantra on the words of HR, to then becoming a business person. What does the business want? How does it look at the labor cost? How do you sell a product? And it's really connecting the dots from the, from the business to the people and the and, and it's really important to do this. And I think sometimes within HR, we, we talk about performance management, we talk about training and development, we talk about bonus plans, but we never really connect it to the thing that the general managers, that the owners, that the shareholders, that the executive team is talking about, about how much do I have to pay? How do I keep these individuals? And at the end of the day, discrimination is, is, is a bad word nowadays, but they want to discriminate. I need you to help me run my company. I need to make a difference in how I pay you or you. So we don't want to discriminate based on the things that are based on gender or race or anything like that, but we need to discriminate based on contribution. Yeah. And I think HR struggles between, you know, differentiating with people, getting to the point of versus equity and fairness and structure and all of those things. And we tend to lose 
our momentum when we talk to leaders when we put in too many of these big organizational words rather than what organizations between 100 and 300 want, which is really get to the point. How much is it going to cost me? How do I do this? How do I stay online and do this? And that's really where uh, I focus my career, talking to leaders in a no-nonsense language, and they really appreciate it. And I think that was the conversation that we had in that training session. No nonsense. And so it doesn't have to be a nightmare, but it absolutely could be a nightmare. What's your experience with whiners? Do whiners usually end up getting the most money? <laughs> or like, do we act on whiners? So you're talking about differentiating based on contribution. I love that. But like, what about Amy and I, you know, like out there in the consulting world, you know it, like, the CEOs are sick of hearing from the same old squeaky wheel. It's like, just do something for them. Like, what, what do we have to do to shut them up? I mean, so what's your experience with whiners? So it's so interesting. And, you know, take benefits, for example. You put in a plan that is right for 80 to 90% of the population because it's, it's for everybody. But who's going to complain is the 10 to 20% to say, mm -hmm. you did something to me. And, and they're looking at it from an individual perspective, which they should. Every employee should be asking for as much money as possible because management <laughs> has to balance that. And, you know, the first answer is no. And then we come to some sort of agreement. But we're looking at it from different lenses, the population versus the individual. And the whiner is really an advocate for themselves. I mean, that's a better mm -hmm. way of saying the word. Yeah. And we all want more money. We all should be asking for it in one way or another. So, number one, they have to be listened to to some degree, but they have to be contextualized. And a whiner may not, they may not stop whining, they may leave. So, it, it's really key from my perspective to say, here's the aggregate value and the cost of labor. Here's how we differentiate and pay individuals in that total cost. Here is the level of turnover you may see from that here's the level of complaints you may see from that is that an acceptable level so i think we need to start from the management level what is the tolerated turnover rate 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent because i can give everybody two hundred thousand dollars and you have no turnover rate maybe no productivity but it's <laughs> going to cost way too much money so you yeah. balance between the tolerated risk of exposure versus the cost of that and once you settle that, and it's the same thing with the merit increase, to say we are going to have a 3% increase this year, even though we know inflation is higher than that. <laughs> but in reality, there's going to be some leakage, whining leakage of another 1%. We build that in. We then act like we're complaining. Oh, my God, I can't believe this. Okay, for you, we'll make the exception. But we've already built that in. Okay. Okay, that's a good tip. <laughs> I mean, I think I think build it. Yeah. I, I think where I see it a lot is like in our small businesses, they don't have a compensation strategy to begin with. So they're kind of just like making decisions as they feel the right thing to do at the time. And that's when I see it get really out of balance. And sometimes my best advice is like, let's get it right the first time. Let's, let's stop making people have to come back and constantly negotiate with us. It's like, we're not getting it right to begin with, we have a range and then you paid them at the lowest end of it. You know, it's like, what's, what's the strategy here? Cause we're right. just like, 
we're just kind of floundering. I think that is one of the biggest differences between working for a really large organization that has a bucket of money and knows exactly how they're going to spend it. And we're a smaller organization that has more flexibility to begin with. So therefore there's things like this that they just don't have a good strategy around so that they can actually go back. And when they have to say no, they can do it with confidence Yeah. versus now they're like, Ooh, they're going to leave. And I'm like, you know, people are going to leave sometimes. They're always going to be places that's going to pay somebody more money than us. But we also have to maintain kind of where we're comfortable compensating people to keep the business running with the most amount of people as we can happy. So, yeah. so tip, tip number one in that is allow the leaders to be honest because the facade of having to be politically correct having to believe in equitable treatment of everybody all the time, having the social agenda be the reason you make business decisions, we're all forced to speak in a certain language, no matter how much we actually accept that language. So number one is to say, well, are you really cheap? Or are you really afraid? Or are you really aggressive? Or are you really, do you really care about your employees? Find out, allow them to answer and if the answer is, I just, um, I just don't know what to do and, and I don't know how to act, or it's like, yeah, I, I need to put more money to the shareholders or we're expanding a business so I cannot give any more money now, allow them a, a, an honest answer mm-hmm. and you'll find that 99% of the time, nobody wants to hurt anybody, nobody's acting unethical. It's just a matter of immediate priority and immediate resource allocation and then we work behind to make that happen. So if you say, hey, I'm on your team, I've listened to you, I understand why there's limitations, we'll work with those limitations. You'll tell them what the risk is of those limitations, and then at least you can move forward. So if, and many organizations, for example, have, have a, a gender pay issue, there's no question about it. If you come too forcefully and saying, hey, slap on the wrist, my God, this is wrong, 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 they don't know what to do with it. Their backs are going to go up with it and there's nothing actionable about it. And then they do tokenism. Well, I'll increase this and I'll change this and I'll, and I'll do it here and there. But they, but if you say, okay, listen, let's just go from the place you are now to plus one for next year and plus mm-hmm. two for the following year, we're going to get to where you need to go, but allow them their defenses to go down first. really important in compensation because it's all about money and there is greed in money. There is selfishness yeah. in money. There is yeah, unequal distribution in money. It's, well, I think it depends too, like which leader in the room you're talking to, right? It's like, are you talking to the the finance team about the stuff, or are you talking to the marketing team, right? It's, and that's where I think we see it get really <laughs> like out of balance. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, how do I win the CFO over on this one, like? <laughs> So I had, and maybe this is totally inappropriate, I, I once said in my journeys to, I don't know if it's an HR person, I can't remember, I said, your job is to make this man's grandson way richer than you'll ever be. That's your job. And if you think that you work for you, you're not here under the pleasure and behest of the leader, you're wrong because you're just going to butt head. So as long as you try to make the shareholders do well, you will do well. Mm. Don't, don't ever forget that. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> it's true. <laughs> you yeah. are paying it's, for private we school. Use our, yeah. It's all about how we influence the leaders as HR business partners and they all tick a little bit differently. So um, I want to switch subject a little bit because I'm curious because this has come up for me pretty recently and I fit a, an age, certain age demographic where I have my own personal beliefs on it. But when I was at Nordstrom several years ago, we went through kind of a, a change in some of our compensation for leadership levels and removed the equity piece from quite a bit because really we had done extensive, you know, two years worth of studies and research firms and all of this. And what we constantly heard was that different generations in the workforce would rather have more fixed pay than variable pay elements. So um, I've had this come up recently with an organization and someone left that, that had some equity and the leadership team was shocked. And I kind of said this, right, as the youngest person in the room, and I'm not young, I'm in my 40s by any means, but I said, I would agree, right? And that equity wasn't super important to that person. They weren't happy and they chose to leave anyway. Um, but I'm curious, and what have you found as kind of the changing trends in that fixed pay versus variable pay and to from a total rewards? Like, is base salary still number one for people? So. It's a great question. Um, anytime there is a, uh, a threatened current stance, meaning I feel like I'm not going to be able to afford my rent or my mortgage, I feel like the car payment or my school payments is too high. If today's life is unaffordable, stop talking to me about 401k plans. Mm -hmm. Stop talking to me about my, my future self. I'm worried about my current self. And, and it could be just an insecurity, not even a reality, an insecurity. So, mm -hmm. but the more that insecurity is there, the more it's all about give it to me now and give it to me in cash. Yeah. Because I, I don't know about my future. I don't trust the future. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really, and to tell you the honest truth, at this high in, inflation rates, that's really where we are right now with a lot of people. Um, yeah. One thing in the past that, that bothered me um, at one company that I worked for, they, they issued me equity. Um, but they would never provide me with any kind of like illustrative model. Um, and so that's been one thing that as we, um, you know, at Vanica, if, if we're able to give, a, you know, especially like new executives, profits, interest unit is the structure that we're using. We try to give them something concrete. So like if this, then that, if this, then that year by year by year by year, so that it feels like a little more real because it's so nebulous and like, could it be three years? Could it be eight years? Could it be never? Um, and so it is very hard for people who don't have sort of a entrepreneurial mindset or a risk mentality to put their chips in that bucket. Um, you know, bonuses and stuff is maybe, maybe we could talk about bonuses a little bit with respect to variable comp, but equity is hard for people to really, especially I would think young people that haven't paid their house off, you know, do have car payments, do have student loans. It's hard for them to be like, okay, I they got to really hit the I believe button on the company. Um, and, and that's yeah, and plan what you have to explain. Well, yeah, so I think it's, it's a retention thing, right? And so I'm like, I look at how much money I gave back when I quit that large corporation because right. three years worth of that equity had not vested. So I gave a lot of money back. So I think that's also where we have to remember, like, with the ever-changing generations in the job market, just, their desire is different. And I, I don't think 
you know, a boomer generation statistically staying in jobs a lot longer than our Gen Z and millennial generations are staying in jobs. And that's just facts, right? And so um, I think that's hard. But I would say that also the one big thing is like, I didn't know what to do with it. I wasn't a financial planner. I wasn't given money originally for financial planning services. So I'd look at how much I like didn't option on and I lost it anyway. Because it was like stock and I was like, a third 29 30 year old getting stock options i had no idea yeah, I, yeah and now um, i look back and regret that but that i didn't educate myself better but you know so, so companies, companies they can't do what if statements is like hey if it doubles you're gonna get this you, you're just not allowed to forward project mm -hmm. uh, you can provide calculators so that employees can do it themselves but it's so distance from the current and we don't necessarily understand it. We we get what a 401k is, but we don't get what equity is. So it is um, it is suffering from lack of knowledge. But you know, ways to work around that is if I'm going to give you a bonus worth ten thousand dollars, let's say, I can add two thousand dollars of equity to it. So it's attached to something. And it's an additive, even though it's not really an additive. Again, I would have baked it in with the CFO, but it feels like, hey, not only you're getting 10, but I'm also giving you this extra two when it kind of means something. And then you're going to say, oh, well, what is it? And so on and so forth. So as long as your primary need is satisfied, the bonus payments, anything extra will seem extra. But it's, it's how it's communicated is really important. When's a good time for a smaller business? Like, let's talk about like, I don't know, 40 to 100 employees. When's a good time for them to consider doing some kind of profit sharing with their employees? Like if they haven't historically been able to bonus people, it doesn't pay for itself. Like how do they determine when they maybe look at like a profit sharing program or something like that? How can they get the, the business to pay for a bonus program? Well, small businesses are usually strapped for cash. That's so, so you start to pay profit sharing when you have more ability to pay. That's a starting point. And when you start to show profits, because otherwise it'd be a bait and switch thing to say, hey, we got this program. It could pay you 20,000 or 10,000 or 2,000, but uh, never mind. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> We've never been profitable yet. Not profitable. Yeah, not profit <laughs> That's sharing. an issue. And, and the other thing, too, is profit sharing denote you're actually being transparent about your profits. And so there's sometimes smaller right. organizations do not want to talk about how much money they're making and so on and so forth. So when they get comfortable with the ability to pay, the ability to show some metrics, um, and they're looking for longer term retention, um, that is when they start to do these things. Because when you're smaller, it's about the teamwork, it's about the uh, connection and access to, this, to the leadership team, it's the ability to feel like you're accomplishing something. So the relationship that companies have with the employee is not a per se about the money, but about the, the work environment. And then it becomes the opportunity, right? Oh my God, so if I'm not making a lot of money now, I could make a lot of money in the future, right? Um, so that, that is when you pay a little bit less with a lot of equity. And then it sort of settles into, no, we just need employees, so we're not going to we're not going to, it's not about accessing the CEO. It's not about the future. It's about the work you do now. So there's a, a progress of 
styles, and that's really what you want to try to be clear about in how you communicate to the employees. And, and, that, and that's, that's really the, the overall compensation statement. And, and tip number two is people get it wrong, HR people get it wrong, because they come up with these standard generic statements that don't really tie into really what they're trying to achieve. And if you can just be honest again with where you are and how you want to pay people, how you want to keep people, who you want to keep, it will really clarify um, the, the, the pay relationship you have with employees. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about merits and inflation. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I so, had someone recently say to me, I don't believe in merit increases. Oh, see, I'm like, all we do is merits. We don't do cost of living because if I'm paying you well, then you're getting paid in the today, the market rate for your job you're doing. So I'm like, don't talk to me about cost of living if like I'm paying you well for the job that you're doing based on a recent good benchmark. Um, but what's your, like, you have any good stories for us, Steve, about uh, merits versus cost of living versus only adjusting people's salaries for inflation? Like what's the best practice and um, what are the, what's a good talk track for that with employees? Well, it's not a good talk track, but here's the reality. <laughs> Even better. It's not connected to the cost of living. It is not. Mm -mm. It is connected to the unemployment rate. Merit. Merit, which means I only cost need to labor. pay more when there's, when there's hardly anybody in the market, low unemployment rate. But if there's a ton of people looking for jobs, high unemployment rate, I don't need to pay three, four, five, six percent. So it's it's the three percent maybe fine is based on cost of living, but it really connected to unemployment. Yeah, and, and it's kind of the it, cost it, of labor it, versus the cost of living. Right. I mean, think about a couple of years ago in tech, uh, mid-pandemic. Oh my God, uh, tech folks were so expensive, but now there have been so many layoffs. You say, hey, I don't have to pay as much anymore, right? Because there's more people looking for work. Yeah. Um, and, and that's so, um, and merits, okay. So let's say the market is really, you know, pays for a job $50,000, okay? Or whatever the number is, but the average or the median is $50,000. You have to ask yourself, well, why should I pay 51 or 55? Why should I pay 60,000 if I can pay 50,000? So the, the way you, answer to yourself is that $1,000 or $10,000 is actually a premium for retention. That's all it is. So anything above the market, whether it's in base salary, whether you have a better benefits plan, whether you have a better matching program, is a premium for retention. And if it's not creating retention, then why are you paying it? Right. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day. Why, why, why? And that's what I would say. What, what is the utility and the ROI of the premium paid on salary. So, so a merit increase of 4%, it's either because you're going to try to beat and do better than others, or you're trying to catch up to others and you have to pay more now. That's, that's really what it comes down so to. So then the question is, how do you get your bang for the buck on that, right? Because if I'm going to pay you without, if I'm going to pay you 53, but the market says 50, how do I get some mileage out of that and let you know that you're really special I'm paying you extra. I want you to feel great. 
You're coming in like higher than I need to pay for these other awesome candidates, but I want you and I want you to feel great. Like, how do I get mileage out of that? Nobody's going to bank. Nobody's going to buy it at 53 versus 50. <laughs> It's Let's say a, 150 versus 100. I could go get a great software engineer for $100,000, but I'm going to pay this dude 150 because he's a he's a stunner and he just got laid off, but he's got three offers on the table. Like what's the how do I make him feel great about that? Yeah, at a certain point in time, there's not enough differentiation that people are going to say I I don't feel the love. Not in a very simple terms, that's what you're trying to get employees to do. I feel like you're making a difference for me, okay? And we're gonna talk about transparency, I think a little bit later on, but, mm -hmm. but think about pay or the total compensation as bragging rights, okay? Now I can't tell people my salary because it's private, generally speaking, but I can brag about the benefits I have and I can brag about the trips that I get, you know, for the sales conferences. So there's a certain thing that, that people wanna feel good about what they're making and then they want to be able to share it with their personal community and so the difference between 50 and 53 is negligible and they can't even talk about it because it's my salary i'm not going to tell people but if you added benefits if you did a better match if you did a profit sharing if you did a random bonus something that they can say wow i wasn't expecting that mm -hmm. wow this adds something different that is going to make a difference because how do I, you know, there's taxes and there's, there's whatever the case might be. The difference between 120 and 125 has no impact on my lifestyle at all. Zero. So you put a lot of weight in the ancillary benefits and like above and beyond salary, because you feel like when I'm sitting at a bar talking to the guy next to me, I'm bragging about my company's, um, other rewards, basically. I don't know that I've ever had anybody brag about a 401k. I feel like, for, is 401k, like, people don't care about that anymore? How do we feel about that? Yeah, you do a a a, 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 a two-to-one match. You put in 5%, uh, uh, the company will give 10%. Have you no. ever heard of that before? <laughs> I was like, Mm, that's not that doesn't happen. If that happened, people would care about their 401k. Exactly. I, I was really, like, it's oh, man, I think the company maybe puts in up to four or five if I'm lucky. Okay. Yeah. So did you see your reaction? So there was, I was a, like, oh, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> if someone in the bar said that, I'd be like, what company do you work for? Where do you work? <laughs> exactly. So you need, there's wow stuff. Yeah. There's so you got to figure out like, yeah. what's your wow thing? What's your wow thing? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think if our 401k, if it, I think it's because it's so standard now. Like who's going to work for companies that don't have that other than maybe like startups because it's a cool experience or yeah. really small entrepreneurial companies are getting off the ground. Right. But like if you're going to a company, even that I would say has more than 50 employees, they've set up some kind of simple IRA type yeah. system. Right. So. But it's not a wow factor. Right. Yeah. It's just so standard, standard that it's like, do people care about this? Is this you important give anymore? Everybody in the company a leather jacket or a some sort of Archie comic jacket from the 50s that has their logo that costs $150 each. That, you know, and people are going to look at it and oh, it doesn't mean anything. But yeah, they're not throwing it out. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. So, so what I'm saying is if everybody pays $50,000, you only have to pay $50,000. If you pay $51,000, you're really not going to get the appreciation you think you're going to get. In order to get right. true appreciation, you now need to move it to probably fifty-five to fifty-eight to sixty thousand yeah. to really feel, oh my God, it's something different. I'm not going to be able to replicate that. So, if it's going to be lower, if you don't have the money, you then do it in other ways that you think the employees, the broader base of it, or the influencers, if you have influencers in an organization, are going to really appreciate. Yeah, because that's some companies. I mean, yeah, for some companies that are like kind of doing like uh, mediocre IRA or like 401k contributions, you may be better off just like totally scrapping it as a whole and using that money for to dump it into a wow factor that employees really care about. I mean, you know, you could grandfather somebody that's on the plan, but anybody knew it's like we don't have that because people generally don't care about it. I'm going to take the money and do something else. Yeah. Or using a percentage of it, right? So it's like companies that do have up to five for five, six percent. It's like, is it three or four? And then taking that bucket of money into other things. I mean, I think it's all about kind of total rewards, total benefits, compensation is right. all one big bucket of money. It's really just how you spend it that differentiates you probably. Cause and, and then here, here, here's what happens. A, a new employee has no relationship with the organization. So the only thing that we know is money. I asked for 60, you offered me 58, I, we agreed on 69 or 59, right? That's all we know. But eventually, either I like the work, I like the boss, I like the team, I like the product. Eventually, you can literally underpay me and I'm not going anywhere. I'm part of the furniture. So the relationship between the organization and the employee is no longer about money, it's about something else. Mm -hmm. So therefore, don't put money where it doesn't need to be put. Yeah. Put the money where you think it's going to have the best bang of retention. And ultimately, um, so, you know, another way to look at it is, is organizations that say yes to employees all the time for pay, they're, it works for an individual, it works for a couple of months, it works for a year, but eventually the labor costs are so high that you then have to reduce 10% of your staff. Mm -hmm. And so it's not the individual who's terminated, but somehow or rather, the population gets affected. And it, and it may be you and it may be somebody else. So, so there's always an outlet of excessive labor costs. I always think sometimes too, it's putting a Band-Aid on things because chances are, I see it time and time again, we throw more money at the problem and money wasn't really the problem. It was just the easiest thing for an employee yeah. to like talk about because I don't like you as my leader is a lot more uncomfortable. <laughs> and so like, I just, I mean, I recently experienced this. I'm like, all right, I think we're gonna have this same conversation in six more months. But it, you know, at the end of the day, I gave my guidance, you're the decision maker, I'll support the decision. But I don't think that's the problem because this individual is fairly compensated for the job they're in. If I thought they were undercompensated, I would agree, but like they're not. So what is actually the problem here? Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and, and tip number three, anybody who asks for an increase and then receives it, no question asked, is usually terminated within six months. <laughs> Great, let me go back. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, I'd rather give it to you because I know yeah. you're not gonna be here long term. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not going to argue with you. Okay. 
Yeah, I just yeah, I just never think it's a solution. And I think what you said is so true, right? On the the pain thing, I think the opposite, right, of what you said is true as well. Like when we when we're never going to keep someone, but if they're overpaid and they're not happy, they're not staying either, right? So it's like these these people that if they feel fairly compensated, even though they may not be the highest compensated, if they're really happy and they have a great employee experience, they're probably going to stick around. But if we're overpaying people that aren't happy to begin with, um, they're still not going to stay. You know, right. and eventually they might stay a little longer, yeah. but eventually they will get frustrated enough that they're going to leave no matter where their compensation right. is. And to tell you the honest truth, that's not bad because most of us, all three of us here, you know, we work for more than one employer. We've grown in our career. We've had to move around. And we are now uh, senior enough to say, hey, junior people, I wish you the best in your career and you have to come and go. So having an adult relationship, a mature relationship with an employee during the period of time, we're going to be together for two years, we're going to be together for a year or three years, let's make the most of it. I don't want to take advantage of you. Please don't take advantage of me. I <laughs> get you're going to have to move on. And, and here we are. So it's really hard to have that conversation because it feels very adversarial, but it doesn't have to be. Mm -mm. It's, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement yeah. that we need to work from ages of 25 to 65 or whatever that case might be. And there's going to be a number of employers and it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. I, I wish more leaders would take that approach. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I took that approach when I led teams of people. I'm like, all I ask is that you do the best job you can possibly do for the amount of time that you're working here. And when it's time for you to move on, I'll be your biggest fan. You know, like that's it. And it's like, I can't expect lifelong loyalty. <laughs> People right. have to move on. So, so when know? somebody is saying agitated about pay, you know, the real conversation is, you know, what's bothering you? Is, mm -hmm. is, and, and you feel unappreciated, unloved, unsupported. You need a little bit more percentages to feel that. Am I going to buy all your loyalty if I if I go on a limb for you now, or are you just trying to take advantage of me? You know, you, you want to have that acknowledgement of what's going on because mm -hmm. if you turn to the person and say, "Yes, I will support you," whether it's working remote, whether it's extra time off, whether it's extra pay, within reason, you will get the loyalty of that person for that period of time. You really will. Um, but if you're always, as, a, as an employer, hammering down, um, it's just going to be, you know, a, a turnover of people and, and people are not going to work for you. Mm -hmm. so, so pay, money, is the language, a part of the language of, of loyalty and retention and support and effort and so on and so forth. And sometimes one does not need to be paid to have all of this. They're paid in kind with other ways. And that's really what the balance is. So when, when, when an HR person has a conversation with a leader, find out who they are. You know, are, do you care about the wellness of your staff or you just say you care about the wellness of your staff? Do you, do you really want to be rich and take all the proceeds yourself or do you really care about distribution? <laughs> like really, what do you, do you care that women are paid less? Or do you not care? And you have to do something about it just because you have to do something about it. So mm -hmm. ask them the real questions, and if their answers are, 
not appropriate, then in your mind, you'll help them <laughs> along. Okay. Uh, like the women know. one, I fight that a lot. I'm like, hmm, let's talk about that yeah. more. Yeah, and and so, you know, they may say not now, not now, not now, but mm -hmm. you know, you will put it in. So I, I recently embarrassed the company into do some doing something about it, and I got a whole <laughs> consulting assignment because of it. Nice work. <laughs> I know they they did the merit increase, and I said, well, can we just show in the stats of length of service, uh, like pay differences based on length of service, pay difference based on department, and let's put in gender as well, pay differences based on gender. And they're like, no, gender has nothing to do with it. I said, I know, but let's just, let's just include it. Anyway, they're so biased <laughs> <laughs> that, that they embarrass themselves by looking at the, the, the distribution. And even though it wasn't a, hey, look at this, oh my God, you guys are horrible, it was so there mm -hmm. that they then the leadership or then the head of HR commissioned, you know, okay, we got to do something about this. So sometimes HR can push its agenda by knowing what's right for the organization, but by not slapping the wrists of the organization about not being something. And, and you need to know that it's going to help the organization because other leaders just don't know what to do or how to do it. So they, they need you without even knowing how to ask you how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's true. You know, it's just kind of giving them some data points and facts. And I, I think for us, especially, or for me, I find especially, I work with mostly male leaders right now. That was not the case when I worked for a major retailer, right? It was 70% females. And even then we had disparity that we had to fix and we did fix it. Um, but I work with mostly males now, so so often I get the pushback that it's like my personal agenda because I'm a female. And my <laughs> response sometimes is always like, yeah, it is. And if I'm the only one fighting for this, like, I don't care. I'll continue. I mean, I do it in a more diplomatic way than that, of course. I have to give good But also you pay me to be clients. the expert here and push yeah. your thinking I and not service our clients. Okay. But it is true. And I'm like, well, I think it's important, though, because I am the person in the room that is tied to this problem a little bit more. And I experience it myself okay. in the market, so I can give some perspective on it. But I, And I think honestly, most of the male leadership teams I work with appreciate that because they haven't had as many female leaders in the room. So it's just not coming up as often, so, right? So, so let, me, at. let me challenge you and please don't throw anything my way because this is just a thought exercise. Um, if it's acceptable to move to a lower cost jurisdiction, to move from the US to, to China, to move from New York City to, I don't know, Tennessee, I guess is cheaper than New York City. <laughs> why don't I try to find the least labor cost group as I can? If I can get away with paying women less than men, isn't that good for profitability? If I can get away with paying new immigrants less than non-new immigrants from a simple cost perspective why wouldn't i gravitate towards that if i can get away with paying a hundred thousand as opposed to one hundred and ten thousand, why wouldn't i do it to anybody so so that is the thing you have to overcome because on one hand it is acceptable to go to a lower cost on the other hand we're saying it isn't acceptable and so the clear answer of why that's not acceptable and maybe the answer is just simply because it's just socially not acceptable period that's just the end of the story 
which is a fine answer. You just need to be able to action that and action against the tendency for that to happen. And that's yeah. the, key, the tendency. I think what I see in like some of the groups that I work with, um, it's a little bit industry. There's a couple that are more male, male populated industries to begin with. And that's just kind of standard. Right. Um, and, and what I find is also we live in a different place in the country. And a lot of the females I work with, they just don't ask for it the way the men do. Right. And, and to me, that's where I'm like, we've got to get it right for the individual, right? Because this person has the same skill set, they have the same background, they bring the same amount of work to the table, right? But because they're not as emboldened to come out and challenge and ask for more, I, I don't like that. I don't think people should have to always negotiate for fair pay. Well, so that gets to the next- The professionals yeah. in the room. Well, so like, yeah, I've got two, three year out of college engineers coming to my organization. The guy asked for 95. The woman says 85 to 90 would be great. Um, we give her 85. Um, but let's talk about pay transparency because yeah. there's laws, there's um, practices that, you know, HR professionals are pushing in the workplace. Pay transparency is super uncomfortable because you've got people who are doing the work right now. Then you've got newbies coming in. You've got them asking for different levels of pay on the ranges. Everybody thinks they deserve the high end of the range, right? So what are your thoughts? What are your experiences with handling pay transparency? And like in that situation that I just posed to you, the woman who says, I'll take 85 to 90, they offer 85. The guy says, I want 95. They really like him. They give him 95. Same experience. Look the same. Um great profile, but like pay transparency should help with a situation like that theoretically, right? It should. And, you know, if we remove gender, we just maybe talk about negotiations or performance. The, the problem is much of the differentiation is wrong discriminatory and much of the change differences in pay is because there's an it factor, a loyalty, a contribution that you can't quite name, but it's there. And it's not a gender thing and it's not a color thing. It's just somebody has an it factor. I don't know what it is. I can't describe it on paper and I want to pay them more and I want to keep them and so on and so forth. So I, I see pay transparency more of a minimum standard, entry level, hey, this is the minimum we should pay anybody. And I think that's mm -hmm. appropriate, um, but I, I'm, I'm less, bought in about the higher end, about how high it should be. And I think we have to guard against the wrong kind of discrimination in other ways. Because my job as a, as a compensation consultant, it's not to rig the system, but to basically promote and establish a system that will allow the organization to do what it needs to do, but then show transparency to the world in the way that the world will accept that we're doing it but still allow us to do what we need to do internally. So the, the locus of control, who is making pay decisions, still want management, HR, managers, leadership, still want that decision. And we're slapping them on the wrist saying, no, you make horrible decisions. And we're <laughs> gonna now have the employees make those decisions and, and candidates make those decisions. And so we're shifting who has the authority to make that pay decision. And, and it's, gonna, it's a real challenge. What's going on with it? So obviously we should restate just in case anyone missed this or joined late. We're in two different countries. So just so, so, so no, 
um, different different laws, different things going on in Canada. What are you seeing, pay transparency? Because obviously we know in the U.S., like, it's in some areas of the country. It'll probably be a while before it comes to North Carolina, which is where we live. We're a little behind the times in employment. Yeah, is anyone um, getting fined? Like, what if you don't do yeah, it? Yeah, like, cares? what are you? <laughs> well, it's fine. <laughs> this came up on a previous podcast we should mention where Lisa's like, can I just post a fake range and pay the fine? And I was like, <laughs> That's not the point. It's true. Um, it's it's it, listen. It's 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 snowballing, which means more and more jurisdictions like like the legalization of marijuana. It's going to happen everywhere. Some right. are early adopters. Uh, Canada certainly an early adopter on that one. Uh, BC out in the West Coast, above California, and I think uh, Washington that has pay transparency. Um, and they just put in a proposition here for Ontario. So again, okay, you know, so you're seeing it too pop up yeah, in many more the US places. And, and Canada, we're very similar um, on how we structure ourselves and how we pay yeah. each, ourselves. And so it, it, there's a, it, but it's still fairly new. And I think a lot of people are going to ignore it ish until it becomes real. Um, and there's going to be uh, a lot of difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. So, so what I'm advising my clients is be transparent on your grand statements and then be transparent in your process to say, I promise that there's no discrimination in how we change pay, how we hire people. So the process is the same and then be transparent in definitions of levels. If you're doing this job at this level, it means you're doing this amount of work. Yeah. So no money involved in those transparencies, but it's just process transparency. And then be transparent. The next is, is, is actually the band range, but I would recommend to broaden the range. I would not yeah. a dollar to a million, but I would do not 80, 120, but I would rather do 50, 150, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. The standard range is the 80, 120. The published range is, is 50, 150 because you're allowing for those exceptions at the high end because those are true, but the standard range is going to be 80, 120. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I still want to keep my control for the clients I work with. And, and, and that would be you. That would be you, Lisa. I'm telling you, your organization, you should still have the authority to make the decisions. But at the bottom end, you know, don't discriminate against women. Right. Have a, have a, have a floor. No, no, no. Yeah. We're adding that in. We're adding that in. Yeah. Um, no, no, I think that's great. And, and most do, by the way, I think, I think yeah. seven out of 10 or eight out of 10 organizations have a significant pay difference. Yeah. I, I mean, it, listen, I think it's, you know, pretty much publicly known what the statistics still on of pay is on women and stuff. But I mean, I will say, I mean, I don't think, I think it just got that way because we weren't looking at it. And a lot of the businesses that I support, I don't see that it's in intentionally discriminatory by any means. I would agree. Just, wow, no one brought this to us. Or we just have a lot of people in like special jobs and there's really like not that amount of people in one specific job that we even really looked at it before. So do I, that's do where I have it gets 30 seconds for, for a quick story? Oh yeah, so please. So from I, I finished undergraduate fourth year, I worked in a lab uh, working with hamsters. Okay? So my, <laughs> actually I went from, from um, cemetery to hamsters to, to sex offenders. 
Okay, um, we forgot about the hamsters in the- Yeah, exactly. yeah, you missed anyway, that so, one. <laughs> so there were three of us who worked in a lab after we graduated, um, and it was a long time ago. So the salary was $14,000. I said, there's no way in hell that I'm gonna work after graduating undergraduate for $14,000. My professor, he found uh, a stipend or whatever, so doubled it to 28,000. I said, fine, I'll take the job. It was, it was really good for me. I found out that somebody who I graduated at the same time, a woman, uh, she didn't get the stipend, so she was making 14,000, doing very similar work to me. And there was a third woman, a woman of color, who was doing it volunteer. Again, same work. So zero, 14, and 28. And, yeah. and the only answer that I can give, and that's as far as I can take it, is I would not have taken the job for volunteer or 14. I don't know what the decisions the women made. I would not have made that decision. Right. And I, I think that that's just, and, and, you know, I do some of this work in my coaching side of what I do. It's like, you've got to, you've got to know your worth and what you're willing. Right. And so it's not all on the employer. I think some of it, certainly, right. yes, people shouldn't have to ask. They should get fairly compensated, but you're right. If it's the difference between the 50 and the 55, well, 50 is fair. 55 is the person that asked. Right? right. But if it's, they're accepting something at 40 and they're not asking, it's like, well, that was a choice you made too. So we've right. got to teach you now how to actually right. make sure that you're getting what you're worth. And the yep. employer is actively taking advantage or blindly taking advantage of somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and you know it's, there's two people in that decision. Right. And, and in your review and I've done and I've seen this. So so men make more than women, women, white women make more than women of color right. and and Americans make more than new immigrants to America mm -hmm. because it's those who don't know how to ask or are not asking appropriately are not simply get period. Yeah. Whatever yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It feels like Americans are only good at negotiating salaries. Like you look at like the world overall, you go to marketplaces. I mean, it's, it's common practice. It's called, it's culturally acceptable to negotiate over everything, but we don't negotiate over anything here except for cars and salaries. And women kind of aren't good at negotiating either. <laughs> That's a whole different conversation. Okay. It's another right. episode. That for a different episode. Hey, we're running out of time. There's too much to cover. Um, but we're going to make time for a couple of questions. I thought they were super relevant. Um, we told folks that we had a, a comp expert coming on. Um, so the first question, this is this is cool too, because you um, are an instructor at a university, right? Are you still doing that? Yeah. Um, so someone wrote in and said, has anybody been invited as a guest speaker to a university? I know we do that a lot with our local university, UNCW. We volunteer. <laughs> I try um, to do less and less of the free stuff. But. Yeah, we're going to start sharing our rate. Uh, was it a paid gig? How much did you ask for? The college isn't asking for my rate, but I'd like to get paid. How much should I ask for? What do you guys think? I mean, only you know what your rate is, but you've got hat one and it needs to be good and competitive. And, you know, it's hard for me to answer that and what the rate should be. But I think if you feel like you should get be getting paid, then you sh that should be in the conversation of the requests too. So, um, but you're probably not getting paid. They would have told you. The, the, the $200 that you might have got paid or 300 or 100 or $50 or gift card 
is much less consequential than the LinkedIn that you put in, the, 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 what the, the encouragement you feel about yourself in doing that, the new experience that you had. I, I always ask for guest speakers and they always feel very positive. Just like I'm a guest speaker here, I'm not gonna ask you for money to do this. Um, it's just mm -hmm. it's just a good thing to do. It's yeah. It's it's career development. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. And like, I, I wasn't joking when I said I'm trying to do less of the free stuff because I feel like I did a lot of that when I was starting off when I left corporate America and I was starting kind of my own thing. And I did a lot of that for opportunities and so that I would have the experiences. And then I slowly do less and less of that, and I lean towards more of the opportunities that I am making money because that's how I earn a living is to do those things and make money attached to them. But I'm still willing to do some of those other things too and speak at the big events that put me in front of a different audience and honestly are just good growing moments for me too. So yeah. I think there's a balance. Also, if it's like a guest speaking opportunity that's like in front of the board of directors or at some big event they're having, that's different and you should get paid for that, right? But if it's guest speaker in Steve's class, well, then that's to your point. I mean, that's just good for your person, especially if you're trying to build a personal brand. Like, you know, you're going to do something different in the next couple of years or you're going to start a business or you want to be known as like a, a subject matter expert on something. Get out there and build your network to your point. Right. Um, and you're going to have to do that for free. Yeah. yeah. I, I've had guest speakers talk more about guest speaking in one class than I as the actual instructor. <laughs> that class is like yeah. wow you really are selling this <laughs> all right hey here's a good one too last question i got an offer for a job that i really um and i really want it but they came in at a salary less than i currently make uh, i told them in the interview process what i would like to make why would they offer me less how should i approach the conversation i'm annoyed i'd be annoyed too and i tell them that's not what i'm coming for know your worth so uh, most organizations, when they offer less, believe they have other things going for them. And so you need to say, well, what is it that's making up the difference? Um, and do I want that difference? So maybe they got a great 401k plan. Maybe they are completely remote. Maybe they have a great bonus plan. I, I don't know. So, you mm -hmm. know, if, if there's nothing and they're just offering <laughs> less. Expensive benefits, no 401k. Then you're probably not getting a merit increase next year either. So right. yeah. consider like, it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that, that's what I would ask. What, what else is there? Look what for the different differentiators. Well, yeah. and I think you just have to not be annoyed, but no, sometimes this is part of the process and you have to go back and ask. I also... I don't always think candidates need to tell companies what they're currently making. I think they need to tell companies what they want to make. People are changing jobs because a lot of times they want more money. It's not always because they hate where they are. They're just trying to get out. A lot of times it's because they want that next step. They want more compensation, more responsibility, more career development. You've got to put a number on it as to why, why would you go through a whole new company and all onboarding <laughs> and learning all your stuff and, all the offboarding it takes from the other company to change your mm -hmm. benefits and all this just yeah. for the same exact amount of money. So like, stop telling people what you currently make, tell them what you want to make. And, and by the so, way, a lot of this pay transparency is also including you're not allowed to ask what people are making. 
It makes me nuts when managers are like, oh, well, I asked them what they were making and they told, and it's like, why would you ask that? Like the job is yeah, worth yeah. this. If you think they can do the job, pay them what the job is worth. It's funny because it's not illegal yet here, but everywhere, right? But there are a few places and we had a write-in about that from like, I think it was Nevada maybe, yeah. um, like months ago on that. And and yeah, it was one. And we were like, oh, that's that's not legal here. I mean, I tried and I don't usually ask that to begin with in an exact way. I usually say, here's our range. Does that meet what your expectation is? That's what I usually say, because I think that that's our my responsibility as the employer to be honest and not have to put it all on the candidate. So. Well, this was awesome. Um, yeah. Steve, any any closing comments? I mean, I took a lot away. I love the allowing leadership to be honest, um, being super transparent about like, this is a mutual relationship. You're not stuck here forever. I'm happy to have you for as long as you'll stay. Um, lots of good tips. Any any nuggets you want to leave us with? What, what, are you going to have like Stephen Ozeo, third quartile and my phone number underneath? Because I, I guess I should- Tell us where to find you. Yes. Tell us where to find you. My phone number, or my my email address. So yes, I I'm, I am thirdquartile dot com. I am uh, S O S I E L at thirdquartile. Um, I do work across the United States and Canada. I have international experience. So I am a comp person who talks human being stuff, trying to get to the point of why we're doing any of this. Looking at the totality of all the things we offer. Uh, to our employees, and that's and, and it's worked very well, and I think it's it's been very engaging to for me in my career, and certainly for all the clients that I've worked with. And the the advice I would give really quickly is 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 be honest with yourself and be honest with the leaders in the conversation you have. What are you trying to prove? What are you trying to achieve? And do you know why you're trying to achieve that? I love it. Pragmatic advice from a comp guy. Um, we appreciate it. Hey, um, if you like what you heard, make sure that you hit subscribe. If you're watching us on YouTube, hope you are so you can see our smiling faces. We're glad you're here. Um, if you're listening where you listen to your podcasts, also hit subscribe. You get alerts when new episodes of HR Nightmares pops up. Steve, we're so happy to have you, our first international guest. Thank you very much for spending this time on your birthday. We feel super special. Um, thanks for tuning in to another episode of HR Nightmares, everybody. We're out.